Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hope you guys had amazing Christmases and that you got to enjoy some great time uh, with your family. For those who don't know me, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist, and it is a privilege to be with you this morning as our lead pastor, Pastor Derek, is enjoying some time with family in Kentucky. And so today as we dive into God's Word, as we saw a little bit earlier, we're going to be in Genesis 25. So feel free to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. That's where we're going to be spending our time today on this last Sunday in 2019. So today, as we wrap up this year and, and actually wrap up this decade, I want to talk about something that all of us in this room can relate to. Something that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden, and even something that Jesus faced as he was walking on this earth after spending 40 days in the wilderness. And something that all of us in this room can identify with, and that's temptation. And so my hope today, my goal today, is that we, as we talk about temptation, that we'll see how, in this new year, we can learn to say no to something that, if we're honest, we so often say yes to. And so to help us do that, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. So once again, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open those up. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. We're going to have the verses on the screen so you can follow along with us there. But we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob and Esau, seeing how we can overcome and say no to temptation in our lives. So I have two boys, Ezra, who's four, and Titus, who's almost two. And as their father, I have this deep goal for my two boys to be really close. And it's actually because of a TV show, This Is Us, an episode that I watched not too long ago. So if you watch the show, you know that Jack Pearson is just like this amazing dad, right? He's just seen as this phenomenal father that all the rest of us are just trying to compete for second place. Like, that's how good he is. And so in this episode that I was watching, Jack is hanging out with his two young boys. And as he's talking with them, they, they're fighting with one another. And they're just getting on to each other. And so in the middle of them fighting, Jack breaks it up and he says, don't you guys get it? Then when you get older, nobody's going to have the same life experiences that you two have. So you always got to be there for each other. You always have to have each other's back, no matter what. Don't you guys get that? And as I'm watching that, I'm like, I get it, Jack. I get it. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But it did hit me to this point that I have remembered it ever since then. And so because of that episode, I have just this desire to cultivate this really close friendship between my two boys. But what's crazy is no matter how hard I try to do this, I keep finding resistance. Because even at their young ages, they're already creating this sibling rivalry between one another. And I especially see it in this I want what you have attitude towards each other. So when one brother has something, the other brother is competing to try to get it from them. And this manifests itself in so many different ways in our everyday life. So last month, we bought a Toy Story 4 sound book for my youngest son, Titus. But when we got home, his older brother wanted it so badly that he took it and stuffed it in the sofa chair so that his brother couldn't find it. And then... About a week later during bath time, they're both playing with these little toy cups. 
But Titus decides that he wants Ezra's cups, because obviously they're better since Ezra has them. And so he clawed at his brother so much that when Ezra got out of the tub, he had scratches all over his chest and a gash in his chin. And if that's not enough for you, the very next morning, they're out playing in the living room, and Ezra's on top of this little toy Spider-Man car that like, automatically goes. A car that usually just sits around in our house like 99% of the time. But because Ezra's on it, Titus decided that he wanted to get on it. So as soon as Ezra got off, Titus gets on. But then all of a sudden, Ezra realizes that he wants to get back on this Spider-Man car. So in order to keep Titus from riding it, he puts himself underneath this car as if to say to his brother, you can have this over my dead body. <laughs> I mean, this happens all the time in our house. And it's because they had this competitive, I want what you have attitude towards each other. And see, today, as we jump into this passage in Genesis 25, we see like my two boys, there are two other brothers named Jacob and Esau who also have this sibling rivalry going on. Now Esau is the older brother. He's kind of rough and tough. He enjoys being outside, and he is deeply loved by his dad. And then Jacob, the younger brother, is a little bit of an introvert. He enjoys being inside, and he is deeply loved by his mom. And so these brothers are competing with one another. And what we'll see is that in this passage, one of them wants what the other one has. So let's begin reading Genesis chapter 25 together, beginning with verse 29. And let's see what God can teach us through his word today. So let's begin reading this passage together. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Adam. So in this story, we see that Jacob and Esau are together, and Esau comes in from out in the field with a bit of an embarrassing situation, right? He has a bit of a problem on his hands, because even though Esau earlier is described as this great hunter, he doesn't catch anything. And so not only is he worn out and exhausted, but when he shows up at this place, he's got nothing to eat. But fortunately for Esau, though, Jacob's been at home. And Jacob's been cooking this red stew, something that's similar to what we would call vegetable soup today. And so because he's worn out, he asks his brother if he can have some of it. And Jacob says that he can, but on one condition. And this is what we see in verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. So as Jacob sees his older brother in this desperate situation, he decides this is his chance. He realizes this is his opportunity to get something. Because again, like my boys, Esau has something that Jacob desperately wants. So because he has this leverage with this food, he decides to try to take advantage of Esau. And Jacob decides to tempt him to trade his birthright for this bowl of stew. Now there's a little bit of a disconnect for us here because birthrights just aren't common in our culture just something that we don't deal with anymore, but they were a huge deal back then. In fact, the birthright went to the oldest son in a family, and it guaranteed that they got a special inheritance when their father passed away. In fact, an inheritance that was twice as much as all the other brothers. But what makes this story even more entertaining is that this birthright that they're talking about here is even a bigger deal than usual. And it's all because of who Jacob and Esau's grandfather is. 
Because not too long before this, out of all the people who lived on the earth, God chose a specific man named Abraham that he wanted to bless. A specific man whose descendants would become God's special people, God's chosen people, the Jews. And when God made this promise to Abraham, he told Abraham that it would be through his family tree that all the earth would get to experience his salvation. And no doubt, time after time, when Abraham would hang out with his grandsons, Esau and Jacob, he would tell them about that story. He would tell them about that night that God took them outside and told Abraham to look up to the stars. To look up all the heavenly lights up in the sky that were so many that Abraham could not count. And then in that moment, God looked at Abraham and said, you see all those stars? That's how big your family tree is going to be. And I can imagine as Abraham was telling this story to his grandkids, he would look at Esau. And as the oldest son, he would say to Esau, as the firstborn son, this amazing blessing that is mine is to be yours too. So when we're talking about this birthright here, we're not talking about just some kind of cool certificate that Jacob wants to hang on his wall. No, we're talking about something that's a big, big deal. Because this birthright isn't just a physical inheritance. It's also a spiritual one. So Esau, if he is willing to give this up, he's going to impact not only his life, but his future generations or family's life for future generations to come. But what's amazing is despite the fact that this is such a big deal, notice what Jacob, or excuse me, what Esau says to Jacob next in verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So shockingly, despite everything that we just talked about, in this moment, Esau decides to give Jacob this birthright, to give him this physical and this spiritual inheritance. And he tells him, because what use is it if he's not around, if he's dead? which honestly is probably just an exaggeration that Esau says in order to justify what he's about to do. Because here's what's crazy to me, and here's why I think that. Because when Jacob offers this ridiculous trade to Esau, it was amazing that Esau doesn't try to barter with him. Right? Esau doesn't look at Jacob and say, well, that is way too much. I can give you something a lot less than that. Instead, he just says yes. He just says yes. No counteroffer, no bartering, just yes. I mean, this would be like you asking to trade Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder of Facebook, asking to trade all of his Facebook shares, which are worth billions and billions of dollars, for a number one at Chick-fil-A. And then him doing it without hesitation. Now, as, as amazing and life-changing and delicious as Chick-fil-A is, we all agree that's insane. I mean, that's the kind of level that we're talking about here. So even though this offer is really a joke, for some reason Esau takes it seriously. So seriously that he's willing to do it just like that. And what we see happening in this moment is that Esau gives into this temptation 
to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. And whenever we, we hear this story or we think about this story or we really examine this story, we can't help but think how ridiculous it is. I mean, how foolish Esau must have been to give up so much for so little. And how if we were in his situation, we would never do what Esau does. We would never make this decision. But before we say that, and before we go there, we have to remember why all of this happened. Right? All of this happened because in this moment, Esau desperately wanted that bowl of stew. So much so that nothing else mattered. And if we look around our lives and we look at our life, I mean, so many times we see people doing the exact same thing. They give up so much for so little because in a moment, nothing else matters. I mean, a dad will tear apart a family that he spent decades to build because of, for one night with a coworker. A student will give up a full-ride scholarship to a university because they choose to plagiarize a simple paper and they get expelled. Or how many people will give up a life of freedom for a life behind bars for a brief moment of revenge? And when we look around our life, we see so many times this happening. And in these situations, everything is the same. What's taking place is somebody is trading a birthright for a bowl of stew. And see, the reason we do this is because when temptation hits us, just like Esau and this story, all we can think about is what we want the most. Right? We're not focusing on what's going to happen down the road. We're not focusing on how things are going to go later on in our life. Instead, in that moment, all we can focus on is what we want the most. All we can focus on is that easy grade or that secret relationship or that person to pay. That's what we're thinking about. And see, when this happens, our enemy, just like Jacob, when he sees that we're being tempted to do something with costly consequences, he is so quick to exploit us too. Because he knows that this temptation that we have, this strong want that we have in our life, he recognizes that this is a soft spot. Something that he can use to get us to sin. So if that means that if your strongest desire is to be loved by that specific person, then our enemy is going to tempt you to cross lines and make compromises. Or if your strongest desire is to get an easy grade in the class that you're struggling with, then he's going to tempt you to cheat. And if your strongest desire is to make somebody hurt the way that they make you, made you hurt, then he is going to tempt you to say some pretty awful things to them in order for you to get them back. Right? All these situations, the enemy likes to attack what we want the most because he knows something that is so true. He knows that our strongest want is our greatest weakness. He knows that what you want the most in your life is an area that's a soft spot that he can use to tempt you and he can use to get you to step into sin. And so, so often this sin that we step into in our lives so often is something that we desperately want. And so Satan tempts us to do it 
because he knows that in that moment, nothing else matters to us. And just like in this story, oftentimes it works. So after Jacob takes advantage of his brother Esau, we see this is how the story ends. In verse 34, it says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So this story ends in this very simple way. With Esau taking this meal and enjoying this food and then leaving as if this was like any other meal that he's ever had in his life. And see how calm this story comes to a very anticlimactic ending, I think is what is so disturbing to me. Because what it shows is that Esau, when he got done doing this, it felt like what he did was just innocent. To him, in this moment, to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew felt like the right decision. It seemed like it was what he should have done, right? Even though this guy has just thrown his entire life away, in this moment, he doesn't feel like it. Instead, saying yes to this temptation seemed like a very good decision to Esau. So he just eats his meal, and he gets up, and he leaves. And see, in our lives, when, when the enemy wants to tempt us to do what we want to do the most, and we say yes, so often, just like Esau, it seems so innocent, doesn't it? And that we even feel like in the moment that it was a good choice, that it was the right decision. Because let's be honest, right? Making an easy grade in the class that you're struggling with, that feels good. Or verbally laying into somebody who's really hurt us and really wounded us, that feels good. So even though we don't like to admit it, if we're honest, so often sin seems good. And I think the reason that it does is pretty simple. And here's what I think it is. I think so often that sin that we're tempted to do regularly, that we're tempted to do so often in our life, the way that we see that is often the way that we see something that we want to buy, but we have like a spouse or a friend that tells us that we shouldn't. So maybe we really want to buy a new car, but our friend or our spouse tells us, you know what, that's, that's a bad idea, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't go out, you shouldn't spend all that money. And, and if we're honest, like we get what they're saying, Right? Maybe the car is pretty expensive. Maybe we're not really getting the best deal on it. But we definitely don't think it's going to hurt us as much as our friend acts like it will. So even though our spouse or our friend might think that this decision is going to be potentially costly to us, we don't. But here's what we do. Because we respect them, and because we respect what they have to say, we choose not to do it. We don't get the car. But every couple of days, we might get on the internet, go to the dealership website to see whether or not the car is still there. And maybe in a month, if it's still available and, and they've dropped the price a little bit, we might go back to the, the dealership and maybe give it a test drive. Why? Because the reason we're staying away from it isn't because we think it's bad. The reason we're staying away from it is because somebody else thinks it's bad. 
what we often don't realize is this, the, this is so often the kind of relationship that we have with that sin that we're so tempted to do. Like something that we want to buy, but our friends or our spouse tells us we shouldn't. We don't really think it's that bad. Right? We at least don't think sin is as bad as God says it is. But you know what? We respect God's opinion. Right? We respect what God has to say. So because of that, we'll stay away from it. Because of that, we'll fight temptation so many times in our life. But so often, when the time comes for us to give it a test drive, we so often do. Why? Because we're not staying away from sin because we think it's bad. We're staying away from sin because God does. And so because of this, we all live with what I call this contradiction in our conscience. We all live with this tension between what we know and what we believe. Because we all know that sin is bad, right? We've read God's word. We understand what scripture says. We all know that sin is bad. But here's the problem. If we're honest, we don't really believe it is. That's why we keep doing it. And so we live with this contradiction between our head and our heart, right? Our heart says that sin is bad, but so often, excuse me, our head says that sin is bad, but so often our heart says it's not. And this is why that temptation that we fall into so much in our lives, why it is so hard for us to say no to it. And why we do it again and again and again. Because even though we know that sin is bad, what we actually believe is that it's really not any more harmful than a hot bowl of stew. So the question becomes, what do we do? Right? How do we keep from being like Esau? How can we learn to say no to something that we really want to say yes to? So when my boys aren't competing to try to get what the other one has, they actually have a great time playing with each other. In fact, Ezra loves playing with his brother, and he loves playing rough with his brother. To the point that, you know, he'll squeeze him really hard, or he'll tickle him until Titus goes from crying to laughing, uh, backwards laughing to crying. Um, or he'll be in a situation where he'll just, like, want to pull Titus to another room because he wants to do something fun. And because Titus is small, he oftentimes finds himself hurting his brother. Ezra often hurts Titus because he's smaller and he doesn't realize, you know, what's going on. And so because of that, we have a rule in our house. A rule that Ezra isn't allowed to touch Titus unless mommy and daddy says that he should. A rule that Ezra never follows. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times... We tell him not to do it. It doesn't matter how many times we get on to him. He continues to touch his brother, and Titus continues to run to us crying because of it. And see, the reason this happens, I've come to, to conclude, is because despite what I say, Ezra doesn't really think that touching Titus is dangerous. Right, to him, it's fine. To him, it seems good. To him, it's just something that he loves doing. And so when, when I tell him not to do it, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get that as his father, I'm trying to protect him. I'm trying to protect him from doing something that I know he's going to regret later. 
I know it would crush Ezra if he actually did something to really hurt his brother. And so he's too young to realize that I know Ezra better than Ezra knows himself. And so he continues to do it because he doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust that I know what's best for him. And see, when it comes to temptation, neither do we. Because what we don't often realize is that temptation is less about giving into desire and more about giving up trust. Right? Temptation is less about giving into desire and more about giving up trust because whenever we choose to say yes to sin, it's because we don't trust what God says about sin is true. And like my son, we don't think it's dangerous. And whenever this happens in our lives, We've forgotten something so important, just like my boy Ezra does. And what we forget is that God, as our Heavenly Father, has a deep desire to protect us, especially from the dangers of sin. So much so that He was willing to send His Son to come and die a painful, agonizing death on the cross in order that we might not be controlled by it anymore. Because all of us are born slaves to sin. So even though it might seem good, because it's our master, right? It wants to ruin our life, it wants to abuse us, and it wants to take advantage of us. Everything that a slave master does. And God loved us enough that he, he sends Jesus to come down, to die on the cross, and then rise from the dead, so no longer sin would have to have its control and its mastery over us. And then in his continual love for us, he tells us time and time again in Scripture to stay away from it. Because he knows just like the fruit that Adam and Eve ate in the garden, sin might seem delicious, but it's actually deadly. And he wants to protect us from that. But every time in our life that we say yes to temptation, it's because we don't trust what God has to say about sin. And it's because we've forgotten something that the cross shows us to be true. And it's that God's design for us is better than that desire in front of us. God's design for our life to live a life not giving into sin but fighting against it is so much better than any temptation that's in front of us. Because the reason God tells us not to sin isn't because he's trying to rob us of blessings. Instead, it's because he's trying to give us blessings. He's trying to give us this abundant life. And God loves you so much that he wants to protect you from doing something that he knows that you're going to regret for the rest of your life. Like trading a birthright for a bowl of stew. And so what we have to realize is that God's design for us is always better, even when sin seems good, even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we can't really see, we have to remember that God knows us better than we know us. And God knows what's best for us, even when something else looks so much better. We have to remember, if God was willing to go on a cross and die for you, then he's obviously invested in your life. He obviously wants what's best for you. And the life that he has for you is always better than what the life that sin, your slave master, has in store for you. 
So whenever we find ourselves wanting to say yes to temptation, it's because we've forgotten that God, our Heavenly Father, who wants to protect us, says that we shouldn't slip. And we should trust that he's doing it because he loves us. So all this means if if we want to to learn to say no to temptation, if we want to learn to say yes to what God has for us, this is what we have to remember. What we have to remember is that you say no to what seems good so you can say yes to what is better. How we say no to temptation is we say no to what seems good so then we can say yes to the better life that God has in store for us. And the way that we do that is that we choose to trust. No matter how good sin looks, no matter how delicious it may seem, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, what we have to remember is that God's desire for you is always better than that desire in front of you. And we have to trust God. And we have to remember what the cross shows us. And so if we want to keep from being like Esau, if we want to keep from ruining our lives by giving in to temptation, this is what we have to remember. We have to remember that God's design for us is always better than anything that we see in front of us. And even when it seems good and we don't understand why, we have to trust that God, our Heavenly Father, wants to protect us. So as we go into 2020, as we go into a new decade, this is my challenge to you. My challenge to you is that you will learn to say no to temptation that we so often say yes to. By saying no to what seems good so you can say yes to what is better. And that throughout this year, you'll look more like Jesus and that you'll have a deeper love for the God who wants to protect you. So let's do that together. Let's say no to temptation for our good and for God's glory.